listening to the Trinity Church Chester Sermon Podcast. Trinity Church Chester is a new church seeking to reach the city with the good news of Jesus Christ. And at the heart of our ministry is our Sunday worship service, in which we hear a sermon preached from a particular part of the Bible. We're glad you're listening. We'd love to see you in person at the Welsh Presbyterian Church Building on St. John Street in the city centre. We meet there every Sunday at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and you can find more details on our website trinitychester.church Come and join us as we seek to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Our scripture reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 1 to the end of chapter 31, verse 13. Let's hear God's word. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, The Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire, and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept, until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out, and the six hundred men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and four hundred men, two hundred stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? He said, I'm a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev and against the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb. And we burned Ziklag with fire. David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, that I will take you, then I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. And David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back everything. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. 
Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Bezor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord's. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of the Negeb, in Jatir, in Aroah, in Sifmoth, in Eshtemoah, in Rakal, in the cities of the Jeremelites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Hormah, in Borashan, in Atak, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. Now, the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come uh, and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted for seven days. Amen. This is God's word. Here at Trinity, we're finishing today a series of sermons on 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel is one of the Old Testament books that record events of particular significance in the history of God's people. And the Bible teaches us that it had always been God's intention to gather for himself a people who worship him from every nation. But his plan to do so unfolds in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel. Which is why so much of the Old Testament refers to Israel. And the event of particular significance in Israel's history that 1 Samuel revolves around is the installation of the nation's first king, King Saul, and the transition to Saul's successor, King David. Saul was the king whom God's people had chosen for themselves. They had demanded a king to rule over them, and in response, 
God gave them what they demanded, and he appointed Saul as king. And although Saul's reign got off to a good start as he began by obeying God's instruction, things quickly took a turn for the worse as Saul then began to reject God's words and live and govern according to his own will. David, on the other hand, was the king whom God had chosen. God had announced that because Saul had rejected God's word, God had rejected him as king. And God, through Samuel, anointed David to succeed Saul. That succession doesn't formally take place until the beginning of 2 Samuel, but throughout the second half of 1 Samuel, we've seen this growing contrast between Saul and David. Saul's life was really one of tragedy, and it ended in tragic fashion. Having rejected God's rule, he then became increasingly unhinged and paranoid and fearful, which over and over again gave way to him acting violently in anger. David, who in one sense had more to worry about than Saul did, David really did have someone seeking to end his life, as Saul made it his life's life's aim to kill David. Uh, In contrast to Saul, David persistently acted with poise and calmness, and he acted justly as he sought above all else God's honour, even in the face of his own persecution. Uh, Saul was suffering more and more military defeats, but David was becoming more and more successful in battle. And it's it's that last contrast that draws 1 Samuel to a close. As Saul goes out to battle against the Philistines and is defeated, whilst David goes out to battle against the Amalekites and could hardly have achieved a more resounding victory. It's even quite plausible, given several time references that we read of in the final chapters of 1 Samuel, that these two battles took place on the same day. We're supposed to see them side by side and witness Saul's fall alongside David's rise. Yet, whilst we're supposed to see these two scenes and these two men side by side, we're not supposed to give them equal attention. The ending of 1 Samuel is intended to bring David, God's chosen king, clearly into focus. We know that because we're not given as much detail when it comes to Saul's defeat in chapter 31 as we are with David's victory in chapter 30. You only have to glance down at the passage as it's printed in your order of worship to see that. Two paragraphs, 13 verses for Saul's final battle, compared to seven paragraphs and 31 verses given to David's. And the reason for that is so that our attention might now be firmly fixed on David and on his accomplishments as he's presented to us in 1 Samuel chapter 30. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 30, then, is all about one thing. It's all about deliverance. It's all about the comprehensive deliverance that God achieves for his people through his chosen deliverer, his chosen king. And it's all about the goodness of this deliverer himself. And in case you're wondering what the exploits of an ancient king on behalf of an ancient nation have to do with you today, keep in mind that one of the roles that this particular king, King David, plays in the course of history, according to the Bible, is that he functions as an introduction to what God's greater king, God's universal king, would one day do and what he would be like. David, here, by his accomplishments and by his character, teaches us about the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want us to look at this three passage, which is all about deliverance, under three headings. Why we need it, who provides it, and what it means for us. 
Firstly, then, why we need it. If David's deliverance of his people in 1 Samuel 30 teaches us about the way the Lord Jesus delivers his people, then the people who David delivers are supposed to teach us something about ourselves. The reason David's people needed delivering teaches us something about why it is we need delivering. In verse 1, we're told that David, who was still in hiding from Saul in enemy territory in the land of the Philistines, returned to the place where he'd set up camp for him and his people, to Ziklag. And what he finds in Ziklag is a scene of devastation. The Amalekites, another hostile neighboring nation of Israel, had burned the settlement to the ground. David's men had been traveling with David in preparation for a battle, and so they weren't in the camp at the time. But their wives and their children were, and they'd all been taken captive by the Amalekites. In verse 4, we then read that David and those with him wailed and wept to the point that they were exhausted with grief. On David's part, his two wives had been taken. He was just as distressed as every other husband and father returning to the scene. And yet, presumably, because it was David who'd brought them to Ziglag in the first place, the intense pain that David's men felt led them to talk about stoning David in verse 6. It's a scene of devastation. It's a scene of misery. And when you think about it, there's not only one, but there's two scenes of misery here in our passage. There's the loud cries of distraught husbands and fathers weeping in the ashes of Ziklag, but there's also the silent cries of the no doubt terrified women and children in the hands of the Amalekites. Both groups of people are powerless. The men have no idea where the Amalekites would be by this point, no means of finding them, and from their point of view, no strength to overcome them and rescue their wives and children. And the women and children, they're helplessly captive, unable to free themselves from the hands of the Amalekites who'd captured them. And any hope that the Amalekites might deal mercifully and treat these vulnerable people gently is then dashed by what we read of how one vulnerable Egyptian who had been a part of the Amalekite people was treated. In verse 11, some of David's men come across this young, exhausted Egyptian man who had not eaten or drank anything for three days. David feeds him and he regains enough strength to tell David in verse 13 that he was working as a servant to an Amalekite, but when he became sick, the Amalekite left him behind to die. This was the Amalekite way. This was how they treated the most vulnerable. Uh, They were a people who had previous in this regard in the Bible. Back in Deuteronomy 25, we're told the Amalekites had attacked Israel when they were faint and weary as they traveled from Egypt in the Exodus. And their plan of attack at that moment had involved picking off the stragglers at the back of the group, which was, of course, young children, young mums, pregnant women, the elderly and the frail. The context for David's great rescue, which we'll look at shortly, it was a scene of miserable captivity. And it's a scene that reveals to us what it is that we need rescuing from. Now, it's almost certainly the case that none of us here today are held against our wills by oppressive slave masters. But what we see elsewhere in the Bible is that To be a sinful human being, which all of us are, is to be, by nature, a slave to sin. 
Jesus taught this in John chapter 8. He taught, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And his point is, since every one of us commits sin, every one of us sins, every one of us breaks God's law, both in blatant and more subtle ways, we are all slaves to sin by nature. The Apostle Paul makes the same point in Romans 6, that we are each, by nature, held captive. We're helpless. We're unable to free ourselves in sin. There are different aspects to this particular teaching of the Bible that says at the heart of the matter we're not only sinful but we are slaves to sin. Uh, One aspect is that it reveals to us that sin is not merely an action or a thought or a word or a desire but it's a power. It enslaves. To be a sinful human being as we all are by our very nature is to be held in the power of sin. And in one sense, each person or group of people who in 1 Samuel 30 need rescuing shows us the effects of the power of sin. David's men grieve to the point of exhaustion. The women and children are helpless. The Egyptian servant who also seeks deliverance from David, he's neglected and left for dead. It is all a picture of the life that is ours by nature as sinful human beings under the power of sin. It's a life of misery. Now, in the teaching of the Bible, sin and misery go hand in hand. They're two sides of the same coin. To be sinful is to suffer misery, and to suffer misery is in one, or, one way or another, directly or indirectly, to suffer the effects of sin. And what our passage helps us to see is that we need to be delivered from both sin and misery. Uh, We need to be delivered from both these things, which are the same, uh, different sides of the same coin. Now, perhaps in churches, we're particularly familiar with the idea that we need to be delivered from our sin. But we also need to be delivered from the misery that comes to us as sinful human beings. Grief exhaustion, helplessness, neglect and injustice. From each of these features of misery, we need to be delivered. And here, right at the end of 1 Samuel, we're brought face to face with the one who can deliver us from these things. That's why we need deliverance. Secondly, we also need to see then who provides it. Uh, 1 Samuel 30 is all about David. In 31 verses, his name is mentioned 28 times. You can't get away from him in the passage. Uh, Now, when David, and when David, then David, and David's two wives. David was greatly distressed, but David strengthened himself. That's just the opening paragraph. And this focus on David is all building up to the resounding victory he achieves over the Amalekites and the comprehensive rescue he accomplishes for his people in verses 16 to 20. In verse 16, the Egyptian servant who'd been left behind by the Amalekites takes David to where he knew the Amalekites would be by this point. And we find out in verse 22 that some of David's men had gone with him. But in the passage, the emphasis is all on David conquering the Amalekites. It's as though he was the only one there. So in verse 15, David said to the Egyptian, will you take me down to the Amalekites? In verse 16, we're told that the Egyptian took him not them, down to the Amalekites. 
And then look at what we're told happened once they arrived in verses 17 to 20. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. And David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back everything. David also captured all the flocks and herds and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. The battle was fought by David. The deliverance was provided by David. Who provides the deliverance we need? One man, the passage teaches us. And we're told two things about this man. The first thing is rather obvious when you hear it. It, It's that he's unbelievably strong. We've been told this about David throughout 1 Samuel. He was a great warrior. And the picture painted for us in these verses we just read is a picture of a warrior single-handedly conquering an entire army with people fleeing before him. And that same warrior returning from battle, carrying with him all that he had set out to recover and more. David returns, we're told in verse 18, with all the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives, including every single one of his men's wives and every single child belonging to his people, and with the Amalekite sheep and animals, which in an ancient culture like this one was provision for life. And here David is, as it were, carrying it all, with the people going ahead of him announcing, this is David's spoil. God's king, God's deliverer, possesses unrivaled, unparalleled strength. And we're given some insight into the real source of his strength, in one sense. Back in verse 6, in the wake of the Amalekite destruction of David's camp, amidst all of the distress and with David's men discussing whether David ought to be stoned to death for his part in causing it all, We're told that David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Uh, Now, don't get too excited just yet about the prospect of discovering in verse 6 some secret means for strengthening yourself in the Lord. uh, Because it is an enticing turn of phrase, isn't it? If David was able to strengthen himself in the midst of his misery, then how can we strengthen ourselves in the midst of ours? We might begin to think. But... This isn't a mysteriously effective method for gaining strength of whatever kind that David was somehow aware of. In fact, the helpfulness for us in verse 6 is in its very ordinariness. What's being emphasised with this phrase, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God, is the personal association David has with the Lord. He is not only the Lord... But he is the Lord, his God. He is David's God. And in the midst of the misery he and his people are experiencing, David finds strength in recalling to mind who his God is. One commentator puts it like this. David, at this moment, could no longer say, my house, my city, my possessions. But he could say, my God. And that is where our strengthening must begin. Another commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, 
He points out too that this is a similar phrase used to one earlier in 1 Samuel when David is trying to escape Saul and we're told in 1 Samuel 23 verse 16 that Jonathan, Saul's son, David's friend, went out to David and strengthened his hand in God. How did Jonathan do that? Well we're told in the next verse that Jonathan reminded David of God's promise. The hand of Saul my father will never never find you but you will reign over Israel. Uh, It's reasonable to assume then that in verse 6 of our passage, the way that David strengthens himself is by calling to mind God's promise and by renewing his trust that it will come about. How do we gain strength when we're weakened by whatever misery we encounter? We remember who our God is and we remember that his promises to his people have not once failed before and will not fail in relation to us. Uh, David was characterised by this kind of trust in God's word and in God's will. And it was in one sense that the source of his great strength in delivering his people. Yet we're told something else about this one man who goes out and comprehensively delivers his people. He's not only unbelievably strong, but he's also kind. Now we don't necessarily associate kindness with great strength. But that's what we see here in David. We see it in the way that he treats the abandoned Egyptian servant. In verse 11, the servant's found on his own and he's in a bad way, having not eaten or drank anything for three days. And prior to that, having been unwell, unwell enough for his employer to deem him an inconvenience and to abandon him. He's in such a bad way, in fact, that he's unable when he first arrived to even explain to David who he is and what has happened to him. He's exhausted and weak. And whereas his exhaustion and weakness had caused the Amalekite master to dispense of him, when David is faced with this frail, broken man, he shows him kindness. Gave him bread and water and more sugary foods. And as a result of David's kindness, the man was restored. There was no suggestion at this point that this man might prove to be a source of intelligence that would lead David to the Amalekites. David wasn't trying to revive the man so that he could extract information from him and then dispense with himself. David was simply kind. He simply did this man good for the sake of doing this man good. Not so that he could benefit from it. And this kindness is something that would, for the most part, characterise David in his reign as king. And it's particularly significant when we remember that this is God's chosen king. What kind of man would we naturally assume God would choose to deliver his people? I expect most of us would assume that God's deliverer would possess great strength. But kindness? That's not how we naturally think of God. And yet here is David, a man after God's own heart, a man of God's own choosing, and a man of whom, a man whom God had raised up to deliver his people, whilst at the same time walking in God's ways. And he's a kind man. Not only that, but God also arranges circumstances so that it's in fact only through kindness that David delivers his people. In God's providence, David's kindness to this abandoned Egyptian leads him to discovering where the Amalekites had taken David's wives and all of the women and children who belonged to his people. At David's great deliverance, it comes about through kindness. Because this is how God works. 
God's deliverance of his people is not something that's merely functional or transactional, but his deliverance comes about through and is marked by kindness. And we can't miss the resemblance that we see here in David. David's a man of great strength and great kindness. He went out and, as it were, he single-handedly delivered his people. He points forward in time to another man of great strength and of great kindness who went out on his own, his people having betrayed and denied him. And on his own, he rescued his people from their slavery. The death that the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross was a death of resounding victory because in it he conquered the devil and he conquered all that might enslave us. And when he uttered his final words, it is finished, he was referring, among other things, to the fact that the great battle he came to fight was now over and he had won comprehensively. And as a result, he had delivered all of his people from their sin and misery. David resembles the Lord Jesus Christ in so many ways. Uh, In the way that he travels to his victorious battle. Uh, What did Jesus do in, in the years that led up to his death? Jesus didn't merely pass the time, but he went about showing kindness to others who, like this Egyptian servant, were exhausted and frail and weak. People like us, who were wearied by life, this life of misery. Have you ever stopped to think about that? Have you ever stopped to think about the nature of the miracles that Jesus did, that are recorded for us in the Gospels? Here's this man, Jesus, in possession of strength like no other man who's ever lived. As the Son of God, as God himself, he possessed divine strength even, He could have performed any kind of miracle to display his great strength. But what do we read of him doing time and again? He heals people. He restores people. He heals somebody's child, somebody's brother. He restores families. Why did he reveal his identity and his great strength in that way? Because he's God and God delivers through kindness. And as God's chosen deliverer, he just exudes that kindness. Friends, do you really believe that God is a God of kindness? Do you really believe that God is kind to you in the midst of your particular misery? You who are exhausted? Do you realise that God is not indifferent to you, but he is eager to show you kindness? You who are frustrated and fed up, you who are confused and disoriented, you who are just for whatever reason or for no discernible reason just experiencing a very real and deep sadness, you need to know that your God is kind and his deliverance of you is not only comprehensive but it's laced through with a thousand kindnesses. He's kind. We don't naturally think like this. And so one of the ways that you and I need to strengthen ourselves in the Lord when we're wearied by the misery of this life is we need to remember who he is, that he is both strong and kind. That is why we need deliverance. That's who provides it. Thirdly, finally, really briefly, here's what it means for us. What does all of this mean for us? Well, 
We're given an indication of what difference God's deliverance makes in our lives when we're told about the difference it made in the lives of God's people in 1 Samuel 30. In verse 21, David returns along with all of his spoils from battle to the place where he had left the 200 of his men who'd been too exhausted to go with him in pursuit of the Amalekites. And it must have been a, a beautiful moment, that moment of David's return. Husbands and wives reunited when they had feared the worst, children brought back to their fathers, families restored. But we're not told of any of that. What we are told of in verse 22 is how the men who did go and fight with David argue with those who did not go and fight uh, with David. And and they argue that they should be given, uh, those who did not go and fight should be given, no share of the wealth that David had brought back from the battle. Uh, If you're tempted to think that that argument has some warrant to it, then you should probably consider the way that the text describes those who made the argument in verse 22. They're referred to as wicked and worthless fellows. And in response to the argument, David passes what might well have been his first policy as Israel's king. The spoils will be distributed evenly between those who go to fight and those who remain with the baggage in the camp. In other words, regardless of your role under David's reign, everyone will benefit and be blessed as a result of David's victories. David's reasoning for his position is laid out in verse 23. He points out that the blessings they received as a result of the victory were gifts from the Lord. He has, he has preserved us and given into our hand the ban that came against us, David told them. And so in doing that, what David did and what he would do on a larger scale in his official role as king is he united God's people. He brought unity to God's people. And in a similar fashion, brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus has united us together. As a result of his great victory on the cross, God has given through him many blessings, many gifts to us. Uh, This is something that the earliest Christians referred to regularly, and in particular they'd referred to how the risen Lord Jesus Christ has given us the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, in a sense, the victory spoil that Christ returns with after delivering his people from slavery to sin. And he pours out his Spirit on his people. We have all received the Spirit, those of us who trust in Christ. And what that means for us is that there is no place in the church for comparison games. There's no place for comparing ourselves to others and viewing ourselves to be more or less worthy of the victory spoil. We've all received the same Holy Spirit as a gift. Not one of us has earned it. We are all here by grace because of the strength and kindness of our common deliverer. And so the mandate for our life in the church is for us always to treat one another with love and kindness and to never think that we are more worthy or less worthy of the rescue that we have received than anybody else's. David went about seeking a nation of even-handedness in which nobody sought their own gain above their neighbour's gain. And we are to go about seeking the same kind of culture in the church. In one sense, 
We've been delivered through kindness, and we've also been delivered to kindness. And so let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for great David's greater son, who went out and single-handedly conquered all of his and all of our enemies, and rescued comprehensively all his people, all who trust in him. Lord, we pray that as those who benefit from his victory, we would resemble him and his kindness in our lives in relation with one another. So we pray that you would help us in this. In Jesus' name, amen. listening to the Trinity Church Chester Sermon Podcast. We hope that this message is a blessing to you. If you'd like to know more about the Christian faith and what it means to live as a Christian, please do get in touch. You can email hello at trinitychester.church or head to the connect page on our website trinitychester.church forward slash connect. We'd love to hear from you soon.